0: Tonight's reading is from John 8, 1-11. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery. And placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now, In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. So what do you say? They said said this to test him, that he might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw the stone at her. And once more, he bent down and rode on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away, one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you, go, And from now on, sin no more. The word of the Lord, brothers and sisters.
1: Before we start, just a reminder, next week is Transfiguration Sunday, and we will uh, celebrate that wonderful uh, moment in our Lord's life, and then we'll have a a feast together. Uh, We try to have potlucks on feast days, and so check the bulletin uh, so you can be sure to bring something, because feasts go better when they're is food. (laughs) So bring something next week. Well, we are finishing up tonight um, a series that began just as a four-week series on healing shame. And then as uh, so many conversations uh, revolved around healing sexual shame, we extended it for three weeks. Uh, And tonight will be the end of that. Uh, Paige uh, had a personal matter come up this week, and so she's not able to teach tonight. So I'll be preaching the final sermon in our in our series. And I thought it might be good to just take a moment and think of it. What, what what do we mean when we talk about sexual shame? Um, earlier in this series, we uh, contrasted the difference between guilt and shame. We said guilt is a feeling that I have done something wrong. Shame is a feeling that I am something wrong. And so uh, sexual shame is uh, a feeling that my sexuality or something about my sexuality is bad, that my sexual desires are bent, twisted, or perverse. Uh, A person experiencing sexual shame may feel that their sexual history disqualifies them from God's grace. Uh, They may have a feeling that they and their sexuality is different than other people. Um, Sex addicts feel sexual shame, but so do many people who are not addicts. Uh, We can feel shame over our thought life, fantasies. Uh, Sexual shame can be expressed in uh, feelings of disgust for our body. Uh, A younger person may feel shame over the intensity of their sexual desire. An older person may feel sexual shame uh, over the dwindling of sexual desire. Sexual shame is any way we feel dirty, less than, unwanted, rejected, impure, unholy, twisted, bent, perverse, or unable to function as sexual beings. Now, what are the sources of sexual shame? I just wanted to kind of review that. That's something we've talked a little bit about in our series. Sexual abuse is one primary source, and tragically, the abuse victim often feels responsible for what happened to them. And one of the things that uh, I think we find in this is that many people uh, may not understand that they actually have experienced sexual abuse because their definition of abuse is too narrow. Um, Here's a quote from Dan Allender's book, The Wounded Heart. There are two broad categories of abuse, sexual contact and sexual interactions. Sexual contact involves any kind of physical touch that is designed to arouse sexual desire in the victim. All inappropriate sexual contact is damaging and soul-distorting. Sexual interactions are far harder to acknowledge. They involve a subtle sexual invasion that leaves the victim wondering if it occurred. Interactions can be categorized as visual, verbal, or psychological. Shame is a significant part of sexual abuse. The flower of deep longing for love is somehow hideously intertwined with the weed of abuse. Longings are wed to abuse. Abuse begets shame. And shame is inextricably related to a hatred for one's own hungry soul. Another source of uh, sexual uh, shame are sexual failures. Um, And for some reason... Anytime we fail in this area of our bodies and sexuality, it it, it seems like it's harder to experience God's grace and forgiveness. As one person put it, it just feels like the cross doesn't apply to that. And as we've seen, the church also uh, has been a source of sexual shame for many people. we've, We've not done a good job of casting a vision for faithful sexual integrity. We We've not offered a sound theology of pleasure. Uh, We've not helped our people know the difference between the gentle conviction of the Holy Spirit and the shaming narrative of the inner Pharisee when it comes to sexual wholeness. And then I'd also say that isolation is a fourth cause of sexual shame. Uh, We are made in the image of a Trinitarian God. We're designed to flourish in community. But this is just one area that we don't talk about. And, and so often people are left to, to suffer uh, alone. Sexual shame is very challenging to heal. Uh, one reason is because it's often repressed and masked by other symptoms, uh, such as self-hatred, the fear of intimacy, emotional or sexual, eating disorders, physical problems, the inability to form close friendships, depression, and sexual addiction. And one of the things that um, I'd ask you to think about as we go into Lent is to just be open to the possibility that this is something that's happened to you in your past. I don't don't believe in going and trying to dig up bad things. Uh, I don't see the point in that. But I do think if something's stirring in this for you, during Lent, you might just ask the Lord, Lord, I don't think there's anything here, but if there is anything, uh, would you show it to me? Would you kind of bring it back to mind? And then if there's not, don't worry about it. And if there is, then, then talk to somebody about it. And you might be thinking, I'd rather not. What difference does it make? Well, I think it does make a difference. If you, If you've got a traumatic wound like that in your soul... It ultimately will keep you from becoming all that, that God wants you to become. I, I've got a, a friend that I swim next to, and he's, he's 65. He's a very good swimmer. And um, two weeks ago, he had a heart attack after practice. And um, that's a bummer because that's why we swim, <laughs> so we don't die. And, this, and he died. No, he didn't die. But uh, he was actually in the pool yesterday. I said, You're kidding. You're back. He says, Yeah. And I said, uh, this is kind of a bummer. We're not supposed to have heart attacks because we get up so early and swim. And he says, well, this started 20 years ago when I was working way too much and I had some junk go on. And so 20 years later, not dealing with that stuff, came back to, uh, to give him a heart attack. So, um, so you don't deal with it, you probably die. That's my point. Um, okay, no. Just something to think about. Sexual shame is also challenging to heal because of what it does to the brain. Uh, I said if there is one book... To read on shame, it would be Lewis Smed's Shame and Grace. If I could recommend two books, the second would be Kurt Thompson's The Soul of Shame. And he talks about how our shaming narratives actually shape the way our brains function. He's a medical doctor. And he says, the story we are telling ourselves is coming from parts of us that are deeply buried. Associated with neural networks from the brainstem, limbic circuitry, temporal lobes, and right hemisphere circuits, whose activity are not associated with immediate conscious awareness. So, in other words, what he's saying is that the things that we've gone through that have created shaming narratives are actually uh, embedded in our neural patterns, and and so uh, they are harder to overcome. They can be overcome, uh, but it takes more time. And this is especially true. If you have experienced trauma in sexual abuse, and and, uh, let me remind you again of our broader definition of sexual abuse, it's not just being touched, it's any kind of interaction. Um, uh, Bessel van der Kolk, a Boston psychiatrist, uh, wrote an excellent book called The, The Body Keeps the Score. And he says, trauma is not the story of something that happened back then, it's the current imprint of that pain, horror, and fear living inside people. And his book also shows the latest research about how trauma rewires the brain. So, if you suffered the trauma of a sexual incident or a sexual interaction, that event impacted your brain in the way that you think and respond today. And sexual shame causes you to want to repress that experience and not deal with it. And again, I would just suggest, from the correspondence that I've had with you, the conversations that I've had with you, and the longer we've gone in this series, and we are done tonight, the, the, the more uh, honest and painful and hopeful I think you've been in the kind of things we're talking about. And so my sense is, is that while the series is done tonight, God may not be done tonight. And so during Lent, uh, if this is something that's stirring, maybe you could uh, focus on it a little bit. Um, you might give yourself the gift of seeing a counselor during Lent. You know, maybe that's not something you can normally do, but maybe just five times during Lent you do that. Or you might meet weekly with a friend to read through a, a book or study scripture. I'm doing that with a friend every Monday this Lent. Uh, you might come by the chapel on Friday night, Mar- March 8th at 7, and I'm just going to pray for healing shame. You might uh, get on my calendar. We could just talk a little bit. You might build into your schedule 30 minutes a day simply to do Anything that opens you up to the presence and voice of God. And just, you know, when we think of fasting for Lent, I'm, I'm kind of changing my thinking on this. And, you know, I just trust wherever you are. But, you know, we usually think about, well, you know, I like beer. I guess I should give that up. Um, I'm not really sure how helpful that is. <laughs> it's helping you become more like God. Uh, if you got a problem with beer, maybe it is. Well, what I would suggest is give up time. Give up something that keeps you from having 30 minutes a day to be with the Lord, whether that's you know, television or social media uh, or, or uh, maybe even working too much. I think that might be a more productive fast for most of, it, most of us than giving up chocolate, um, although if that's an issue, go ahead and do it. Um, so here are some of the resources that I've mentioned in the series. Um, Shame and Grace, The Soul of Shame, The Wounded Heart. Um, by the way, if you, that, that's the one on uh, Christian overcoming sexual abuse. And um, if you read that one, uh, if you feel led to read that one, ask a friend to be praying for you and have someone to process it with you. Because my experience is stuff can come up as you read it. Um, And then that last one, uh, the body keeps the score. So those are some resources. Well, uh, so that's a little bit about sexual shame. How does Jesus heal sexual shame? Well, uh, we could start by saying in the same way that he heals all of shame. And so everything that we learned the first four weeks would apply to healing sexual shame. We need to know the difference between guilt and shame. We need to embrace our identity as beloved children of the Father. We need to identify the false voice in our head that constantly condemns us. We need to be vulnerable with a handful of safe, spirit-drenched people. We need to stop judging one another and trust one another's journey with God. Well, For the past three weeks, we've been just looking at this little uh, story and asking what it might teach us about healing sexual shame Uh, knowing that it doesn't teach us everything about it, and it's not really primarily about that. But that's what we've been listening for in our text. And two weeks ago, we noticed that Jesus spent the whole night in prayer at the Mount of Olives before he met with this woman. And and we spent some time thinking about healing sexual shame as deeply spiritual work. It comes out of prayer. It should come out of prayer. Sexuality and spirituality are very closely related. And a healing sexual shame is healing the soul. And last week we imagined that the woman symbolized anyone shamed by religious leaders. And we saw that Jesus seemed to be teaching the religious community not to focus on sexual sin above all other sins. The church's obsession with sex has caused much sexual shame. So a community that does not single out sexual sin as the unforgivable sin is a community where sexual shame can begin to be healed. Now, let's spend the rest of our time tonight looking at the last part of our text. Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Now, I hope we've said it many times. Being vulnerable with people you love and trust about areas you feel shame is a very important part of of healing from sexual shame. But there's another dimension that happens when we're alone with with Jesus. Um, There's something about solitude and silence and quiet and being in the gentle, loving presence of Christ that is immensely healing for the soul. You know, shame is the sense that I'm unlovable. The love of Jesus heals shame. And, you know, you, you might understand that doctrinally or biblically, And that's a good thing. But there's something about just being in the gentle presence of Christ that helps us touch his love. And that begins to heal the shame in our soul. Now, I want to stress that the way you spend time alone with Jesus will look different than the way it looks for me. And the way you spend time alone with Jesus right now may look different for you in this season of life than in a prior season. (laughs) ironically this is a great source of shame for sincere christians is feeling that they don't spend time with god the way other people spend time with god Uh, i had a young friend lament to me recently that she just wasn't doing her spiritual discipline she felt very bad about it she sure she was failing god and then she went in to talk about this marvelous experience she has with god all day long in her work and in the office and, and and just the way she's connecting with him and 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 I just stopped her and I said, do you see the disconnect there? (laughs) You have a robust, vital relationship with God. You just don't do it the way you're supposed to. So let's not shame ourselves by comparing our times with the Lord. Um, I'm actually in a season right now where my mind's kind of tired. And uh, we're going to be in John 15, 1 through 11 during Lent, starting Ash Wednesday. And I'm just taking the phrase, abide and bear fruit. And I just sit in my chair, and I just meditate on it. And uh, it's been really rich. It's been really quiet. And it's healing my shame. Um, I've mentioned that uh, a while ago, I asked a group of men to write down their shame stories, to go back and look at their lives and look at the times when uh, maybe they were hurt or that shame narrative started to come in about you're never going to make it, or you haven't gone far enough, or you haven't proved yourself enough, or you always must do more, or whatever it is. And then see how God has been healing you. And you might want to do that during Lent if if you're not done with this series yet. Is write your own shame story. When I wrote mine, I realized that a week I spent at the Abbey of Gethsemane was a major turning point for me. I was feeling great shame. You know, I mentioned you know my time of great struggle, earlier in the series. and a week of silence and prayer and and reading and walking in the woods, first it surfaced some powerful demons in me, and that was kind of scary. But then a few hours with a monk named Brother Benedict helped me identify the lies I was believing. And then in the stillness, I felt very loved by God. And my shame began to heal. I... I don't want to go all legalistic on on this, but I I do think one of the reasons we binge on Netflix and social media is that we're afraid of what might happen in solitude. Um, Not that it's always wrong to, to watch TV, but I think we're afraid of the depths. We are afraid of the monsters that live in the basement. But the basement must be entered if we are to slay our dragons. And the key to the basement door is time alone with Jesus. And if I go much further with this metaphor, you'll throw me out. <laughs> so whatever you do for Lent this year, make sure you spend some time alone with Jesus. And I, I, just, I just want to say this. Um, it'll be okay. It'll, it'll be okay. I know it's kind of scary, and it's easier to check another text or tweet or whatever we call them now, but it, it's okay. And, and I'm just finding the Lord dealing with me in real gentle ways as I get quiet. And I keep a little pad by me in my next to my white tea, 1% caffeine, and it's just neat what comes up. Uh, I'd I'd ask you to have a friend that you kind of, who knows you're going down to the basement. So if you don't come back, (laughs) they can go get you. Uh, But this is what Lent's all about. This is what Lent's all about. Well, then we read, Jesus stood up. Um, Rabbis in the period sat down when they taught. Sermon on the Mount. He went up to the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And you would stand around the rabbi. It was a sign of authority. The rabbi didn't usually rise in your presence. Rabbis also didn't interact with women, especially around Scripture. But Jesus the rabbi does both. And he is showing her respect. Uh, He's the first person in the narrative to ask her a question. It's the first time she speaks. And he's the only person in the story that listens to her voice. So we can be Jesus for a person suffering sexual brokenness when we show them respect, and ask good questions, and listen to their voice. You know, I don't know if you've been following the the papal gathering in Rome, and you know, I, I have. Some people follow sports. I uh, <laughs> I follow the papacy, and and it's uh, it's really troubling. Uh, but there was this group outside protesting, and then they submitted their things that they begged church leaders would do, and, and on the top of the list was, "Listen to us when we speak." so i 'd ask that that would be something even as a community that we just agreed to. I, I understand people can you know make stuff up, but I would just ask that we start by believing and listening when someone says, hey, I've been, I've been hurt. You know, in a slow church, this is how the dragons of shame are slain. Good questions, respect, and allowing a person to share their voice. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. There are two Greek words for condemn in the passage. The first one means to accuse. And G- Jesus says, We're the ones who accuse you. In Revelation 12.10, that word used to describe the devil. The accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who have been accused day and night before our God, and they've conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony. So Jesus silences her accusers. The devil is our cruelest accuser. He seems to take special pleasure in accusing God's sons and daughters of sexual sin. Even if you've confessed your sin a hundred times, the accuser comes screaming accusations at us like an infernal banshee. Why does the accuser have so much power in this area of our sexuality? Um, Well, one reason perhaps is, is we may not have fully forgiven those who've sinned against us sexually. And that could leave us vulnerable to the accuser. And so it can be helpful to sit down and ask the Lord. You might do this during Lent. Um, Lord, would you bring to mind anyone who's hurt me sexually that um, I haven't forgiven? And again, you might be thinking, I'd rather not do that. Um, But again, I would suggest to you, he is good, he's safe, he loves you, he's gentle. And I've done this probably hundreds of times now with myself and others. And if there's something there, you'll know it. And if it's not there, you don't need to worry about it. So I would encourage you to pray that prayer over Lent. Colossians 3.13, We must forgive as the Lord forgave us. And so if you have two names on your card, or four, or 18, uh, I would actually pray through each one by name to forgive them. And the more specific you can be, the better. And I'm not trying to be callous tonight, but if we're talking about this, we might as well be honest. Instead of, okay, I forgive that guy for what he did to me in college, it's more likely to to move you towards healing if you say, I forgive John Smith for raping me my freshman year of college in Hess Hall after I drank too much at the fraternity party. A second reason I think the accuser has so much power is sometimes we've not accepted God's forgiveness for our sexual failures. And so another prayer during Lent can be, Holy Spirit, bring to mind any of my own sexual sins, anything that I've not confessed and is not fully healed. And then as uh, they come to mind, just ask God to forgive you for each one. Uh, 1 John 1.9, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I don't think you need to do this over and over again, but I do think there are times in our lives where we go back and do this kind of inventory, and Lynn is a good time to do that. After you've done that, I think it's important to spend some time remembering how God sees you, not how the accuser sees you. Uh, one of my favorite verses about this that I often pray over people after we do this kind of work is Zephaniah 3:17. "The Lord, your God is with you. A mighty warrior is He who saves you. He takes great delight in you. In His love, He will no longer rebuke you, but He will rejoice over you with singing. How does God feel about a person who's committed sexual sin? He's gone to the Father and tried to deal with it. He will rejoice over you with singing. I was teaching on this many years ago at a conference, and I don't remember all the details. And and I suppose it's true that sometimes my stories get better with the years. Um, But I I think this really happened. Um, I was preaching on this passage and we ended and we were praying and the women in the the room broke into a spontaneous circle dance and people in the conference started to go into the middle of the circle and as they went into the circle, the women dancing sang over them. That, beloved, is the picture of the Trinity singing over you when you come back god a third reason the accuser has so much power over us in the area of sexual sin is because sexual union creates soul ties between the people involved Uh, now there's probably a psychological term for this that i don't know of Uh, there are healthy and unhealthy ways to bond with people and a soul tie is an unhealthy spiritual, emotional, and relational bond with another person. And it can deepen through sexual activity. I have a soul tie with a person when I've given them the power to redeem or destroy me. And sex creates a powerful spiritual union between two people, even when the sex is unwanted or later regretted. And science actually has shown that certain chemicals are released to create feelings of attachment between two people when they have intercourse. And uh, for reasons I don't know, uh, the, woman has, the woman has much more of those feeling, uh, chemicals released than the man does. So there's a lot going on here that uh, uh, we have to deal with when we're trying to overcome some of these parts of our lives. And it may, that, that, that fact, I heard a sex researcher uh, share that in a TED talk, and that may suggest why it can be different for a, a woman to deal with this than for a man because our bodies respond in d- different ways. Um, I think we're especially vulnerable to the accusing ministry of the devil when we have a soul tie with another person. Uh, And breaking that tie, I think, takes time and conversation. Uh, But we can take a significant step towards it uh, simply by praying something like this. I actually have this on my phone um, for opportunities in ministry. I bring the cross of my Lord Jesus Christ between me and the name of the person. As Galatians 6.14 says, I've been crucified to the name of the person. And they've been crucified to me. So by the cross of Jesus Christ, I break every soul tie and every unholy bond with the name of the person. And I allow only the love of God and only the bond of the Holy Spirit between us. If that's something you'd like to talk more about, um, just email me and there are others that can talk to you about that as well. Well, let's conclude by considering Jesus' final words to the woman. Neither do I condemn you, Go and sin no more. Now, if you've been with us, um, this is a very troubling passage. There is so much that is wrong with this passage. It's so wrong that the man is not there. It's so wrong the woman has has essentially been sexually abused and dragged into this place. Uh, Everything is wrong with this story. So uh, I, I feel uncomfortable even talking about this last part of the verse because... Why focus on her sin when she has been so sinned against? I don't know what the woman did. I don't know how she heard Jesus. Um, I don't know what more to to teach from the text about that. So I'll talk a little bit about what came up in me as I was meditating on this. Um, I think even when something has happened to you that was uncruel and unjust and abusive, it still can be helpful to ask, uh, how have I sinned in my response to this? Let me try to unpack that just a second. I'm not at all saying blame the victim. Uh, A friend I know was uh, abused sexually, and afterwards she came home in quite trauma. She went into her dad. She told him everything that happened, and his first question was, what were you wearing? Terrible response suggesting that she's to blame for what had happened to her. That is not at all what I'm saying. What I am saying is that suppose that You are abused. Well, it would be normal, wouldn't it, to develop a style of relating built on a false narrative. I mean, when you've gone through trauma like that, it would be normal to kind of enter into the world, into adulthood, with a narrative that says something like, there's nobody in the world to protect me. It's not safe. I'm responsible for guarding my own heart. I will put up walls and never let anyone close again. I must now do for myself what God failed to do that's hardly fair to the child or the person who's been abused. What else are they supposed to do? It's entirely understandable. What I am suggesting is that over time, as we begin to heal from these things, and we begin to understand more about the abuse and what it did to us, it is helpful to look into our own responses to the trauma and see if there are any areas where we've taken God's role into our own Hands. Now, Jesus tells the woman to go and sin no more. And remember, remember, that word can be just interpreted as go on the path that leads to life. So, so he's saying, go walk the path of life. Um, now, I, we don't really know what happens to the woman at this point afterwards. Um, uh, one of the things that, that we do know today is that often it's not that easy to go and sin no more in the area of uh, our sexuality. And, and let me talk just for a moment, uh, as we're kind of coming to an end, not kind of, we are ending here, um, to those of us that are struggling with sexual addiction and their partners. Because um, this can be a very frustrating sermon. So go and sin no more. Um, and if you're recovering from addiction, it, you can feel very ashamed that you've been trying so hard to overcome pornography or whatever it is, and yet you keep failing, and you feel like, gosh, if I really love the Lord, this wouldn't happen, and and all of that. Um, we know today that addiction is a disease that it affects our chemistry, that it affects our genetics, that it affects our brain, and that it takes more than just willpower to recover. So I think if Jesus were speaking to a sexual addict, he might. Uh, say something like this. I don't condemn you. You are my son or my daughter. Nothing can change that bond. When I think of you, it makes me burst out and sing. Yes, you are making choices right now that are not consistent with who you are or want to be. And yes, there are consequences. But we are not done here. Go now. Start walking the path towards life. Get some people around you who can support you on the way. Let's take this one day at a time. Just the fact that you are coming to me with this shows me that you want to move towards wholeness, and I'm proud of you. Now, lastly, just if you are the partner of a sexual addict, extraordinarily difficult, because this wound can feel like such a betrayal, and you don't want to be taken advantage of. And what I would suggest is uh, to look for trajectory. Uh, Instead of just looking at one event, to look at the pattern of your partner's life. Uh, Do they seem to be on a road where, as far as they can, they are moving towards life? You know, in recovery circles, they talk about you know doing the work. Are they doing the work? Are they meeting with other people? Uh, are are they in groups? Uh, are they uh, meeting with counselors? Uh, are they pursuing the spiritual practices that nourish their soul? Uh, are they not hiding things anymore and lying to you? And so, as a partner, what I'd encourage you to do is is look at the trajectory. And if you are a sexual addict, there's tons of grace and hope here. Um, But also, if you don't do the work, don't expect the mercy. Uh, Maybe there could be forgiveness and reconciliation, but you're in a covenant. And if if you're just kind of in that zone where you're playing around and expecting your partner to continue to forgive you because Jesus said to, you're playing with fire. I think it's easier for a partner to give you mercy if you are doing the work and if you're truly on the path, even if you fail, than if you're just kind of dancing around the fire. What we are done with our series on healing shame now, Uh, next week is Transfiguring Sunday and then Lent on Ash Wednesday. And I just want to suggest again that while our series is done, God's work in this area may not be done. And as we prepare for Lent, please pray whether or not there might be more work for you in this special season. Let's pray.